Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Sustainable E-Commerce Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build your brand for a healthier planet. As always, I'm your host, Giles Smith, and my guest this week is the founder and CEO of one of Australia's longest-running ethical clothing brands, Nick Cervadis from Etico. Nick's been in the social enterprise space for decades, since the early 1990s, in fact. And that experience and dedication to ethical sourcing shows through in Etico, who have been winning just about every award there is since 2005, taking out the Australian Ethical Fashion Report top spot every year since it started in 2013. Interestingly, they chose to boycott that report in 22, along with brands like Outland Denim, and we'll explore why in the show. In this episode, though, Nick explains the rich history leading up to founding Etico in 2005, and we explore key things that brands should think about in regards to fair trade, as well as some interesting partners Etico is working with to power their take-back schemes. So with that, let's start the show. Nick Cervadis, welcome to the show. Hi, Charles. Thanks for the opportunity to have a chat today. Uh, well, of course, it's a pleasure. I think you guys are absolutely industry-leading with some of the many things that you're doing uh, with your beautiful clothing brand. And I just had to have you on the show. I had I had to get the rich experience that comes from operating the brand for as long as you have uh, to share with some of the listeners. So thank you for joining. So why don't we start by, Nick, maybe you could give us a bit of background into who you are and how you got to start Etico. Background work-wise, um, I was a high school teacher by trade, no background in fashion whatsoever. But you know, what I did have is, I mean, we had family connections to the, fam- the fashion industry. So my mother, like most of my female relations, uh, worked in the fashion industry for small and bigger fashion labels down in Melbourne. And uh, so, and, and as a young kid, I was aware that we were, you know, as a family, we were struggling financially. And I also know my, my mother was being paid a very small amount. So she was being paid 15 or 30 cents for garments that were retailing for 30 to 50 dollars. And as, as a young kid, I thought that seemed a bit unfair. And then when I was at high school, we used to have visits from uh, Oxfam, which used to be known as Community Aid Abroad, and they kind of made students aware about the gap between what workers and farmers in developing countries were being paid. Later on, um, after graduating as a high school teacher, I got a job as an adult educator in a remote Indigenous community, and I was meant to be running literacy and numeracy programs on the remote communities. But uh, when I got there, I spent a bit of time with the community sitting down to see what kind of courses they wanted me to run. And a lot of people said, what's the point? There's no jobs in the community. Why do we need literacy and numeracy? Right. And we started looking at creating jobs on the community. And we did everything from setting up a, a community laundromat to a slaughterhouse to a screen printing business. And at the time, you know, Alice Springs, we used to go in and we noticed that you could buy T-shirts with Aboriginal designs on them, which were more than likely not designed by Aboriginal people and highly unlikely printed by them as well. So we thought, you know, why not set up our own um, venture on a remote community where people could actually design and print their own T-shirts. So it was actually a business called Urumpy Crafts. And uh, yeah, we had some success and you know, I learned a lot. So it was basically a, a wholly owned uh, Indigenous business, which was owned by the community. And I was seconded by the education department to help run it. And uh, yeah, so we were supplying designs, printed T-shirts 
to tourist outlets in Alice Springs and through Oxfam Australia-wide. And so when was this? Early 1990s, so 1989 to 1994. Right, okay, yep, yep. Wow, you would have been early doing that, that's for sure. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, it was involved setting up quite a few businesses which were owned by the community. So these days you call them social enterprises. After doing that for about five, six years, working on remote communities, we came back to Melbourne and I tried finding employment with uh, groups like Oxfam and World Vision and a few of the other NGOs and was unsuccessful. And uh, I thought, why not create my own business for good? So I started off by picking up a distribution for a brand called No Sweat. So the No Sweat brand in the uh, early 2000s, I think what year it was, about 2003, 2004, was the world's first uh, sneaker brand to be focused on ethical supply chains. And I was the Australian distributor. And uh, one of the founders was a guy called Jeff Ballinger, who is often seen as the godfather of the anti-sweatshop movement. He's the one in the 1980s who went into factories in Asia, in particular um, Indonesia, and took photos and reported on the exploitation of workers that were uh, exploitation of workers in factories that were making products for Nike and Adidas and quite a few other brands. So he was one of the co-founders of No Sweat. And uh, I learned a lot by just working with him. Um, but uh, he was one of a number of shareholders in the No Sweat brand. They were all kind of left, um, uh, worker right advocates, not really marketers or shoe designers or any other. Yeah, they weren't from the fashion industry. So after doing it for about three or four years, I thought I could probably do it better myself because they were buying this, the products and then I was buying it from them. So I thought, well, I'd just uh, do it myself directly. And um, I was always, I was also having to develop my own marketing material from No Sweat, so I thought I could I'll just do my you know, have my own brand. And is that the source of Etico? Is that where that began? Yeah, and that's how Etico started. So and even coming up with the name was a bit of a challenge because uh, it's not a Greek origin. Always, I was always pissed off that Nike used the Greek word for victory. Actually, my name Nikol is actually is the masculine version of Nike. So Nike is the female version. There you go. I did not know that. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so I thought you know. What's the Greek word for ethical? And I thought, what's the, what would be the opposite? And the Greek word for eth- uh, ethical is ethiko, E T H I K O. And I just kind of shortened it. And yeah, my Greek name is Nico. So ethiko Nico had a bit of a, a ring to it. And ethiko, you know, we kind of, it almost sounds like an Aussie brand, ethiko. Great. It's a terrific name for the brand. And it's obviously standard, stood the test of time because I can see that even back in 2008, you guys were already winning awards. So huge pedigree in the brands now at this stage. Yeah, we've, um, that particular year we thought, because we, we've never really had much of a marketing budget. I mean, I've, I've run the business on the smell of an ORAG since day one, which has it's been a, a learning experience. I mean, <laughs> on reflection, I would have taken a different path. But I thought, you know, we should actually go for as many awards as possible just to help raise our profile. And yeah. At 2008 was the year that we, we, we put quite a bit of effort into that. And, yeah, we picked up a few awards, including the Banksy Award for Most Sustainable Business, the Telstra Social Responsibility Award, and um, the Premier Sustainability Award. There's, there's quite a few. Yeah, and we'll come back to one that I particularly want to talk about in a minute around Australian Fair Trade Awards and Australian Ethical Fashion uh, Awards, uh, because I, I definitely want to come back and talk about those. But... You've got such a deep pedigree in this space now, you know, not just in Etico, but what you were doing with No Sweat before. How have you seen the industry conditions change over that length of time? How does it compare? How how is it now compared to what it was, say, for example, five, even 10 years ago? The fashion industry. Yeah. Well, the fashion industry, but specifically the the uh the frameworks the ability and the mindset around sustainability and ethical supply how has that shifted 
um, you know, like how is it different now to what it was maybe even pre-pandemic? The, the awareness of the issues that we're going to have been addressing since we started 16 years ago, there's certainly a greater awareness yeah. of them now. When, when I first first started, I, we had meetings with retailers who told me we were basically bullshitting that there was no child labour or sweatshop labour. And for the, the reality is that for the we were probably about nine years ahead of the market because there wasn't there wasn't that awareness about how bad practices were in factories until 2013 when the uh, the Rana Plaza tragedy yes. occurred in Bangladesh. Yeah, and uh, about 1,200 workers were killed and about 2,500 workers were seriously injured. I mean, that was not the first industrial accident in the, in the fashion industry, and it wasn't the last one. It just happened to be so big that the media couldn't ignore it. And it was as a result of that tragedy, um, it actually helped our business. Disgusted to say. I mean, yeah. It's it's a shame, but what I, you know, if there's any positives to be taken out of those things, it is the raising or the lifting awareness that comes with it, right? And then and then the the willingness and openness of of consumers to then look for explicitly look for ethically sourced brands and that you know you have to take the positives out of those things sure and the other positive thing is that um, one of the things that happened in australia is the launch of the australian ethical fashion report uh, which was released i think a year after the uh, the rana plaza tragedy and that kind of um, helped highlight some of the issues that we were addressing particularly the, the living wage component they've also highlighted other issues that um, support that fashion brands have to address when it comes to social impact and environmental impact as well. You guys, I believe, have been scoring quite well uh, within that report every single year since it was published, right? We scored an, we scored an A plus uh, for ethical production in every single report from 2013 to 2021. Though I'm not sure where you're aware of it, we actually boycotted it this year together with a couple of other brands because we've always been concerned about the grading system. Right. And obviously we're happy to get an A plus. But the reality is that... Uh, the gap between an a, a brand that got an A plus and an A was much wider than what's reflected in that scoring. And there were quite a few brands getting A's and B's and um, who weren't paying living wages, who weren't paying farmers a fair price. And, uh, yeah, so we kind of argued that unless a brand was paying a living wage to workers, it shouldn't even get a pass in those, mm. in those scores. And, um, yeah, the feedback we got was that if the the, the authors of the report were too hard on the big brands. The big brands wouldn't participate in the report. And that's what was actually happening. So the, the scores were based on averages. And because the average was so low, even if you did something minor, like say, we commit to paying a living wage in five years' time, that would be enough to give you a, a B or an A. We, we've raised this with the authors quite a few times. And together with uh, brands like Outland Denim uh, last year, we decided we decided we wouldn't participate until there's some changes were made, and you know, that they have been made. They moved away from giving grades based on letters to actually showing the uh, the actual percentage score that you got as a brand. So brands that were getting sixty percent were the ones who were getting. Does that make sense? And yeah. So for a brand to get an A plus, you had to get eighty percent plus. You know, as a brand, you know, we were getting about eighty eight percent, and then a brand like uh, Kmart would get sixty percent. And they get an A. Right, I see. I see exactly where you're coming from. So, so what? So, obviously, you've done incredibly well year after year after year, and you've made you've made a conscious choice to boycott. What would your advice be to other brands that are that are are wanting to participate with that? And how can they genuinely make a difference? What things should they be doing in their brands to be genuinely ethically sourced? One thing that uh, came out of the report of the 500 
or so fashion brands that were audited. Only four could prove that they paid workers in their overseas supply chains a living wage. Four out of 500. That's less than 1%. This yep. is in, that was in 2021. And, you know, let alone pay farmers a fair price for their for their crop. And if they're four brands, like which include Etico and uh, Outland Denim and Mighty Good Basics and Juma, which is a New Zealand brand, if we can do it, there's no reason why these other brands couldn't be doing the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah, so the awareness of the issues we've been tackling is yeah, certainly a lot greater than it was there. But I don't think people are aware just uh, how wide the gap between um, what's been discussed and what's actually done and being done yeah. is. Um, there's a lot more talk about sustainability and ethics and supply chains than is actually being done. I mean, even when it comes to purchasing, I mean, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the UN's STGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. I mean, every corporation in Australia is now signatory to that. I mean, every university, every bank in Australia, they've all signed up to these great-sounding Sustainable Development Goals. But yeah. if you actually look at their procurement, their, their purchasing, there's no connection between what they actually talk about and what they actually do. And no one calls them out. If we called them out, you know, we'd be kind of black banned. We have been black banned from supplying some organisations because we've actually highlighted their their hypocrisy. Transparency then is clearly something that you consider very important. And I can see that, you know, that comes across uh, in the messaging that you have on your site. How, what's your view of the level of transparency that you should be giving to your consumers? And what's also your view of what consumers want to read about? I'm not sure whether people want to know as much as, as, you know, as we probably give them, but they just want to know that when they buy something which is apparently ethical or, or sustainable, that that product or service genuinely is. And that's why, um, and with the accreditations, we only work with organisations which are credible. And um, the Fair Trade Label Organisation Flow, which is the same label you see on coffee and chocolate. Well, it's hard to get Fair Trade certification. It's hard to keep it. It's a good, well, as far as I'm concerned, it's the gold standard as far as accreditation is concerned. What's really exciting about the Fair Trade Label is that the very people who is designed to assist are the ones who oversee the label. So the farmers and the workers make up the majority of the board of the fair trade label. So it's the only accreditation out there which is actually controlled by the people who is actually set up to protect to whose interests to look after. So there are other accreditations which sound similar to fair trade, but a lot of them are actually run by the organised the businesses themselves. So I take any kind of claims that they would make very lightly. It's you know it's fair fair trade like. But it's hard for consumers to know which is the genuine one and which is not. And the problem is yeah the amount of, and it's actually helping uh, greenwashing and ethical washing. So we, we work accreditations like Fair Trade with B Corp. B Corp is a pretty hard accreditation to achieve, yeah. as well as social traders as well. Yeah, so and you guys are B Corps, right? We're a B Corp and we're also a certified yeah. social enterprise as well. So, and yeah, they're all hard to get and hard to keep. But at the same token, I just don't have the resources to send staff out to main, look after our supply chain. So I'd rather pay someone else to, to do that back up any claims that we make. And talking of those sorts of claims and, and interesting words that you're using, you mentioned a few moments ago that you're sort of abandoning sustainable and you're going towards regenerative. So tell us about that. What are you doing that's regenerative? Well, you know, as far as regenerating the, the planet, um, you know, one thing that I actually noticed when I was living on remote Indigenous communities is the traditionally any waste that was created uh, by the community, it wasn't really waste because it would actually go back into the earth, compost and become fertilizer for a other plants to kind of grow, et cetera. And I've always been interested in looking at how do we kind of do the same thing with, with our own products. So we keep the um, the amount of plastic in our products to an absolute minimum. I mean, I'm aiming for to be 100% plastic free. I mean, and 
we're almost there. But none of our packaging contains plastic. Sorry, none of our shoe boxes or uh, we do use uh, a a cornstarch-based uncompostable package for some of our T-shirts, but uh, the rest of it is basically uh, FSC-certified cardboard. And we're best known for our sneakers, and if you look at the sneakers, there's not much in it that won't break down. I mean, we're using natural uh, FSC-certified natural uh, latex. We're using certified organic cotton. Um, The laces are organic cotton. Um, So the bacteria will eat all those. Um, Even the eyelets in the shoes are actually made from stainless steel. Um, The only thing we need to change is the aglet, which is at the end of the shoe lace. Um, But everything else we're pretty confident meets our criteria about being environmentally sound. Giles just jumping in here again with a quick aside. No matter where you are in your journey to grow your brand for a healthier planet, there's one area of impact that all e-commerce brands share, and that's shipment packaging. It's imperative that the customer's order arrives in perfect condition. You already know that if your stuff arrives damaged, that's a bad user experience. It ends up in profit-sucking refunds or replacements, and the damaged items will likely end up in landfill. But how much thought have you given to the fact that your shipment packaging is actually usually a highly overlooked part of the overall customer experience? In many cases, it will be the very first physical interaction someone has with your brand. With sustainability, the war on waste and the single use plastic problem being front of mind for almost all consumers now, the last thing you want is for that first impression of your brand to be dominated by frustration with how your products are packaged. That's why I'm so excited to be partnering with our friends at Heaps Good Packaging on the show. They provide a range of very cost-effective, eco-friendly, compostable shipment packaging from simple mailers through fillers, tapes, labels, and post-pack boxes. And with that all-important first impression in mind, they can also help you with custom-printed packaging as well to really elevate your brand experience. Head over to heapsgoodpackaging.com.au and use code PACKEDLIKEABOSS to get 10% off site-wide. Okay, back to today's discussion. So you mentioned shoes there, which is interesting, because I know that you've got an amazing take-back program as well for those shoes at the end of life. Well, that's part of being regenerated. So yeah, so we've been running the take-back program for about two years now via an organisation in Melbourne called Save Our Souls. And, um, yeah, those shoes are kind of blended with Ripcool wetsuits and other shoe brands now to make outdoor mats. Um, so the idea is to try to keep as much of our products out of the waste system. Yeah. Recently, we you know, also started working with a... Brisbane-based organisation called Blocktex. Okay. And um, we've been collecting clothing, all the Etico clothing that we people return to us if they want to return. We actually, what's interesting is we're getting, because we've been selling footwear for quite a few years, we're getting quite a bit of footwear coming in and being recycled. With the clothing, I know people seem to wear their clothing a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, but uh, with the clothing, um, you know, we, we've had some uptake, but not as much as we, we want to. Uh, but that all the clothing is collected and set up to Brisbane, um, to be kind of processed by Blocktex, who convert it into a celluloid powder and then uh, make new thread and other products from it as well. Right, okay. That's interesting. Um, the other thing we're also doing also is working with a organisation in East Timor called With One Seed. And um, there are quite a few brands now doing a tree planting. If you buy a product, you've probably seen them around the place. Yeah, yeah lots of them, yep. Yeah, the difference with that, the program we're involved in is that each tree is microchipped and um, you know, we we can actually send people to a Google. We can send, give people a Google link, which will show them where the trees are planted, how many you know, each of the trees, what 
what age those trees are, what the type of tree is, and who the farmer is responsible for it. Okay. And so can your customers kind of log in somewhere and see that? And can they kind of check their trees out later? We're working on, we're working on the app so that when you do spice, at the moment, I've just been buying the, the trees in groups of 500. Um, but what we want to do is when people start in the next few months, when you buy a pair of underwear or a pair of shoes, um, you'll be sent a link to show you the tree that's been planted as a result of your purchase. Yeah, that's awesome. And, um, and it is monitored. So it's an ongoing thing. It's not, so it's not just saying, trust me, once again, it, you've actually got third-party verification that yeah. tree's definitely there. Yeah, I love that. Very smart. The ability to link the actual impact you're having back to the order uh, for the customer is a very, very powerful thing to do very, from a communication point of view. We've started working with an organization in India called uh, Plastics for Change. And we, with one of our T-shirts, we actually, um, it's called the Less Plastic, More Love T-shirt. A really nice design on a blue male T-shirt. And with every T-shirt that we sell, we pay this organization um, to collect 10 kilograms of plastic. And about 80% of that plastic has been converted to shampoo bottles for Garnier, the shampoo company. Um, that's one initiative that we did a few months ago. And most recently, we've also added it, and we really haven't shared this through the media yet, but we've set up a program where you can actually tip the workers in the factories I saw that on your site, yeah. We haven't announced it because we're just fine-tuning it, um, but probably the next month we'll, we'll officially launch it. It's one way we can encourage our customers to support the workers who make their products. I mean, we make sure that the workers are being paid living wages. This is a way of giving something a bit extra so they can actually develop their careers or you know, support their families in another way. I think it's great. Did you use a third-party app for that or have you used your own one? It's a third-party app called TipMe, which is a German-based app. Uh, and uh, yeah, we were the first ones in Australia to use it. Fantastic. We've been wanting to do it for quite a few years, but we just never had the resources to develop a app ourselves. So the fact that someone else did it, I thought, okay, thanks for that. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, it makes sense. And um, yeah, we're also working on a new range of footwear, which is based on vegan leather, but unlike 99.5% of all the vegan leather shoes out there, Ours will be 100% plant-based. You're probably familiar with some of the vegan leathers that are coming onto the market, man. Yeah, there's all sorts. Pineapple leather, cactus leather, also mushroom leather even now, I think, is a thing. Well, all those ones that you've mentioned are, are about 37, up to 37% plant-based. The rest of them is actually still polyurethane and PVC. So we're trying to, in the next six months, try to launch a, a shoe which is 100% plant-based. Yeah, right, okay. And, and therefore compostable as well. Yeah, that's really awesome. So, yeah, a small business is doing a lot of stuff in this kind of space. You, you are punching way above your weight. So I just want to come back to the Take Back program a minute. It, you, you've obviously got something successful going there with some partnerships. If other brands in the space were looking to do Take Back programs, what would your advice be to them? Where where, would they, where are they going to fall in a hole? There is a company now who's been set up to Take Back Footwear, any brand. So it's called Save Our Souls. So, um, you know, we were one of the first to start working with them and, uh, yeah, I'm sure they're welcome to, they're happy to take more. And they do footwear, right? But what about other types of things? Yeah. So Blocktex is the one in um, in Queensland. And uh, yeah, we first started talking to them about four years ago and you know, they had this idea of developing this technology to uh, break down uh, fabric into a powder and then make new thread from it. And it took a bit longer than what they thought and what we thought. But they raised them. It was basically having to raise capital. And you know, they successfully raised it a couple of years ago and they um, set up their, they got their factory operating about a year ago. And now they're just kind of scaling up. But Blocktex is another organization that you could reach out to. Fantastic. Um, 
we also kind of work with other companies. I mean, sometimes with some of our products, if there's uh, anything faulty, they'll take them back and repurpose them. There's mm. second stitch in Melbourne. And it was a bit of a challenge uh, up to about three or four years ago. I remember meeting the, uh, have you heard of Mud Jeans? Um, so, yeah, I think so, actually, yeah. They're a European-based jean denim company, and they've been doing take-back programs for about 10 years now. I remember meeting the founder of that company at a conference on sustainable fashion, oh, sustainable brands in Sydney about uh, six years ago. And he, and he said that he tried to do something similar in Australia, and we just didn't have the infrastructure. But, you know, six years later, six years now, we've got it, yeah. There's TerraCycle and all sorts of other things that you can work with. Yeah, I mean, what we need to see is uh, people paying more for products which are not, you know, where they don't have a take-back program or, or are not recyclable and kind of less for products which are made yeah. from recyclable. I mean, this is the problem with the whole plastics and the soft plastics industry is that uh, it's still cheaper to buy virgin plastic than it is to buy recycled. Totally. So what's your solution for that? Well, I'm no expert in this, but just using a, trying to yeah. apply a bit of common sense is uh, put a levy on the virgin plastic and make uh, the recycled plastic as cheap as possible so that people are kind of basically forced to use the recycled. No, I appreciate the thought. So I, th- so I think we're coming to the end of our time together, Nick, which is a bit sad because I've got so many more questions to ask you. But with that being said, you mentioned earlier, I think even before we started recording, that you know you were hoping to get uh, uh, some solid traction for the brand this year after a tricky year in twenty two. So what what does twenty three look like for you? What do you what's your what are your plans for this year? Well, apart from wanting to kind of launch this uh, vegan plant based vegan leather uh, shoe. Uh, the other things that we really need to do is scale the business up. And we've been around for a few years and we've proven, you know, unlike a lot of other brands in this kind of sustainable fashion space, we've actually been profitable. And but we really need to take it to the next one on the level. So we need to find investors who can see the potential for the brand, not just in Australia, but internationally. One of the interesting things that we've noticed is that about 40% of all the traffic to our website over the past three years has been from the United States. And uh, we now get orders from North America on a daily basis. So we need to find capital to actually start making products available over there. We also need to increase our profile. I mean, uh, you know, we've been working in this space for quite a few years, but not many people know about us because we've, we've never invested much money into marketing because we never had it in the first place. So it's you know, we built the brand by word of mouth and also, you know, as I mentioned, uh, applying for awards a few years ago. Um, mm. But, uh, yeah, I'm trying to find investors. We're also looking at doing a crowdfunding for equity camp, so inviting people to who, who like what we're trying to who be, become shareholders in the business. So, um, yeah, new products, um, raise some capital. Have, have you got a good size email list that you can launch that with? Yeah, we've uh, got an active one of about 9,000. We've got about 27,000 people who are on our database, but only about 9,000 of them are active. But we think that's a good basis to do a crowdfunding for equity camp. Yeah, absolutely. No, it is a solid basis. And, um, and crowdfunding for... Uh, social, sustainable, ethical brands has gone bananas over the past eighteen months. So your 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 timing is good. Yeah, well, uh, the people at Outland uh, Den have done a great job following that. Yeah, um, but you know, I'm also trying to build the team up. Um, you know, we we've recently put on a social media PR kind of person because you know we really need to be more proactive in telling our story. But you know, we're looking for people who are actually pretty passionate to join us as production assistants and help us. The other one of the things that we we, what we've done really well is developing an ethical, eco-friendly su- um, supply chain. But what we haven't done is focus on the fashion, the fashionability of our products. So we need to be more fashion-focused, which is a challenge for me because I've got little interest in fashion. This is the irony: is that 
I'm someone who's got no interest in fashion. I'm running a fashion yeah. brand. I've always been interested in the social aspect. So, so I need to find people who can complement those kind of skills. Very, very interesting. Uh, Nick, well, where do people find your amazing product? The obvious place is the, the website, which is etiko.com.au. E-T-I-K-O.com.au. We do have a small network of retailers around Australia whose details you can find on our website. But we also try and encourage people to go into retailers and ask them to start stocking ethical products for ecofam. We've actually had a number of retailers tell us that they feel uncomfortable with what we do, um, that it raises too many questions about other brands in their stores. Yeah, okay. Mm. But the bottom line is they will make the change if they know there's a market for it. Um, so yeah, they need to hear about uh, from, from conscious consumers that there is a market. But also uh, about uh, 40% of our business is also producing products for other organisations. So you know, last year, our, some of our biggest orders came from RMIT University, Monash University, the Australian Greens, and even KPMG. Um, so, you know, we also like to encourage people who, to go to their workplaces and ask them, you know, why we're not buying ethically made branded merchandise for our own organization. So yeah, it's all available on the edico.com.au website. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for sharing your really incredibly deep history in the space, uh, Nick. It's been it's been an absolute eye-opening session with you today. And I hope everyone's got a great deal of insight into some of the crap that goes on in the industry, as well as how to look out for some of the better operators like Etico out there. So thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Giles, my pleasure. Thanks for your opportunity to have a chat. Back to Giles again for my top takeouts. Now, Etico do a great job of transparently communicating their sourcing, and they've got heaps of information about that on their site for whoever wants to find it. But Nick's fundamental view about what customers want to know is simple. They just want to be able to validate that if you say your product is ethically and sustainably sourced, it really is. And any number of words can be invented to talk around that point. But at the end of the day, it's third-party certifications that provide the kind of reassurance your customers are actually after. And I guess we intuitively know that not all accreditations are made equal. Nick's view is that you should seek out the gold standard ones, the ones that are very hard to get and just as hard to keep, because they tend to stand the test of time. He brought up fair trade specifically, which is actually run by the people it seeks to protect. At the end of the day, there's no such thing as perfect. And while you can't hope to get everything right, you can prove significant effort getting and retaining certifications and showing that to your customers. Now, as we've been building out our sustainable brand marketing index over the past few months, I've been very surprised by the number of brands who've taken the great steps to getting certifications, only to have them hidden away in the About Us or Sustainability page and not present them to the customer in the path to purchase. So make sure if you've got the certifications that you're displaying them prominently on your homepage and in your product pages. As Nick points out, for example, sadly, very few fashion companies in Australia are actually certified fair trade. So literally, if you've got it, flaunt it. It will help you stand out and help your customers know how you stand apart from everybody else. And lastly, it was interesting talking to Nick about their take back and recycling programs. As we've talked about a little bit already in this series, end of life product stewardship is gaining momentum. 
Five or six years ago, there really wasn't the infrastructure in Australia to help with this. But Nick mentioned several partners that they're actually working with and can help you, including Save Our Souls for footwear, Block Techs and Second Stitch. And of course, there are other terrific resources like Apparel and TerraCycle. I'll put links to all of these at the end of the show notes for you. These days, it is pretty straightforward to set up take-back schemes. The hard part is communicating it and encouraging customers to actually take the action you want. But that is the topic of a whole different show. For now, I'd like to say thanks again to my new sponsors, Heaps Good Packaging, and I'll be back with you again next week with more stories from the world of sustainable e-commerce. So until then, keep building your brand for a healthier planet.